We are going to continue, finish our discussion of acousto-optics today by talking about devices and some of the parameters that uh, quantify the performance of acousto-optic devices. We saw an acousto-optic device last time. It was a beam deflector. Um, it consisted of a little crystal uh, connector. That was an SMA connector. Um, it looks a lot like an electro-optic device from the outside. Um, in fact, acousto-optic devices, electro-optic devices often form, <coughs> perform the same functions. Um, generally, they're used to modulate light, to modulate it rapidly, faster than you can with mechanical actuators. Uh, one of the principal differences, and we'll start, I think we'll have a chance to start talking about electro-optics today, is that in electro-optics, you have an electro-optic modulator. The response of the modulator is somehow proportional to the field that you apply to it. So a DC field means no response. As you turn up the voltage on your cable going into the modulator, you expect the behavior of the device to change as you turn that voltage up. In a acousto-optic modulator, we have an RF field going in, and so it's the amplitude of that RF field that affects the behavior of the device, not some DC voltage. So acousto-optic devices can modulate light by having a drive signal that has some modulation to the amplitude of the RF drive. Has anybody started the homework for next Monday? Okay, that's, that's, that's starting. If you've downloaded it, if you've thought to download it, that's a start. Um, you're going to be asked to calculate some things about the diffraction efficiency of, uh, of some devices. In very general terms, the diffraction efficiency can be expressed like this. Um, and in fact, your book has a similar definition for the diffraction efficiency, um, where there's some parameters like L, it's the length of the interaction of the acoustic beam and the optical beam. And then there's uh, a bunch of material parameters that get grouped together in this figure of merit M. So whenever you see an expression that has one of these figures of merit in it, um, you have to be a little bit careful because we'll see today that there's different figures of merit and that the idea is that this contains all the information about the material, but it turns out it's also geometry specific. So even this whole expression is only valid for particular geometries. I think this one is for small angle incidence or um, large angle incidence where the incident and diffracted beam are co-directional. The reason I mention this is one of the problems in the homework it's uh, problem one involves counter-propagating beams. And the formula here and the formula in your book don't apply in that case. One of the reasons they don't apply um, is because when you go through the detailed analysis, you have a sign flip that causes this sign to become a hyperbolic sign. And so it's just not. Uh, it's just not comparable with the other cases. Okay? So I posted a hint on the discussion board about that problem. Uh, basically, if you just chug through what the book looks like it wants you to do, um, you won't get a reasonable answer. So please check the discussion board before you invest time in that problem. OK, so anyhow, this uh, figure of merit attempts to take all of the material parameters and put them together in one figure, uh, in one term, that you can use to gauge how effective a material will be as an acoustic-optic modulator. So uh, certainly a larger M means you're going to have better diffraction efficiency. Okay, So if we look at the form of this, so N to the 6, N is the index of refraction. You'll notice it doesn't say which index of refraction. If you have an anisotropic material, um, this is not specific. P 
represents the uh, strain optic tensor. But in order to use this figure of merit, you need to figure out which component, which element of the strain optic tensor is going to affect the index of refraction in the direction that the light is polarized. Okay, so this could be any element of the strain optic tensor, and you have to look at the geometry and figure out which element it is. Rho is the density of the material, and V is the speed of sound in the material. The speed of sound uh, generally depends on whether it's a longitudinal wave or a compressional wave. So again, um, this figure of merit, you can't just look up a number in a textbook and uh, see a figure of merit and, and apply that to the problem. Uh, despite that, you can find lots of instances of figures of merit for different materials being published. So it's very easy to trick yourself into thinking you have an easy solution going on the web or looking in your even yay, um, which I've mentioned a couple times. It's a, it's a book that has basically the same content as what we're covering. It has a lot more detail. One of the things it has is it has lots and lots and lots of tables of material parameters. So it gives pretty much M for any material that you'd want to use as an acousto-optic modulator. Um, and it's on reserve at King Library. Okay. In the discussion boards, uh, I posted a scanned copy of some of the tables in there that you might find useful when you need to look up specific figures of merit. Um, okay, so at low, low acoustic intensity, where you can approximate the sine function as the argument of the sine function, then we can write the diffraction efficiency as being proportional to the figure of merit and proportional to the acoustic intensity. So obviously, this only holds at low efficiency. As you crank up the intensity, this would suggest the efficiency can go beyond 100%. So um, when it becomes saturated, and this argument no longer matches that sign, uh, you have to consider the slightly more complicated expression for the intensity. Uh, but what this does say is that because the amplitude of the acoustic signal, this is the intensity of the acoustic signal, so that's the power per unit area. Um, because that's directly proportional to the diffraction efficiency, you can produce an amplitude modulator just by adjusting the intensity of your driving signal. So it's straightforward to build an amplitude modulator. Um, An amplitude or an acoustroptic deflector, which is what I had in here last time. Um, if you remember, there were diffracted spots on the board, and I turned a dial, and the spots moved apart. The dial I was turning was changing the frequency that was driving it. And so uh, the Bragg condition here governs when you have efficient diffraction. So you can express that angle, uh, which is typically a small angle being approximately equal to the uh, argument of that arc sine. You can see that the Bragg angle is approximately proportional to the frequency of the acoustic wave. So the direction in which you get efficient scattering or efficient diffraction is basically linear, linearly proportional to the frequency. Okay, so as I was adjusting the frequency, I was getting small angle diffraction had my device over here, and I was seeing spots that were a few centimeters apart on the board. I had small angles, so this, uh, this approximation is, is valid. And as I was adjusting the frequency, there's a linear response to the deflection angle. Okay, if I had adjusted the amplitude, there would have been a, a change to the intensity of the diffracted spot. So those are two devices that you can make, um, modulators and deflectors. One of the properties of the devices that you might care about is the diffraction efficiency. So we saw that depends on that figure of merit M. But another property is the bandwidth. So how fast you can drive this and have it respond. Or equivalently, the amount of information that you can encode on a beam using this, uh, this modulator. And so we've been assuming uh, plane wave diffraction in all of our analysis. 
And for most of our analysis, we've been assuming plane wave acoustic, so plane wave optical waves and plane acoustic waves as well. And so our Bragg condition was defined by this equilateral triangle that had the incident k vector for the optical wave. And that's a well-defined k vector if you have a plane wave. If you have a plane wave, that's a, a single k vector. If you have a beam, then there's a spreading of the beam and there's a spreading of the k vector. So there's a range of k vectors, which is what I'm demonstrating down here. Um, so the Bragg condition says that if you have a, an incident k vector, uh, an acoustic k vector, the diffracted k vector has to uh, form the third side of that equilateral triangle. If you're going to modulate your either the intensity or the frequency of the RF wave that's driving the acoustro-optic modulator, you're going to introduce different values of k. Right? So for example, if you change the frequency that you drive the modulator with, you're changing k. And so if you want to be able to tune back and forth within a certain bandwidth, you want to have a certain range of k vectors that can satisfy the Bragg condition in order to get diffraction at all the different uh, frequencies you're interested in. And that's not possible if you have plane acoustic, uh, plane acoustic wave and plane um, optical waves. There's only a single value for big K that satisfies this condition. So uh, turns out we rarely have truly plane waves. We often deal with beams. If you have beams, mention that there's a spread in the k vector. And if we just look at the spread in the k vector of the optical beams, that means there's a range of possible values for the acoustic k vector that can meet that Bragg condition. And likewise, if there's a spread in the acoustic k vector, that also gives us some range. Okay, and we saw that a little bit last time when we talked about the Raman-Nath regime. So the amount of spreading of your optical beam will actually determine how much you can change the frequency of your acoustic wave and still have diffraction. That's the bandwidth of our modulator. Okay, so here's the condition for the Bragg angle, where I've put the angle on the left, everything else on the right, we can differentiate that and say that the change in the Bragg angle is going to be proportional to the change in the frequency. So we already expected that. This is the expression for how the Bragg angle changes when the frequency of the acoustic wave changes. And what we want is we want, um, for our maximum bandwidth, for our maximum value of delta f, we want the amount of delta theta, the spreading of the Bragg angle, to be no greater than the beam spread. And this is the far field diffraction angle of an optical beam, if it has a Gaussian waste of width w naught. For dealing with lasers, we typically have Gaussian beams that obey this expression for their the beam spread. And so as a reminder, what this looks like, you have a laser, a lens collimating the beam. There's some minimum spot size that it's focused to. It's called the waist. And we talk about the radius of that waist as being w naught, so the diameter is 2 w naught. And the tighter you squeeze the waist, the greater spread you have. So I'm calling that spread delta theta. And I've defined that as the full beam spread. 
So the smaller we make the spot, the bigger the spread. And you can estimate that very easily if you have a lens of a certain diameter that's filled by the beam and you're focusing it to a distance SI, right? Then uh, D over 2 divided by SI. is your spread. So even if you don't know the width of the waste, if you know where it's located, you see how tightly the beam is being focused down, you know that it's spreading out the same amount in the other direction. Uh, the acoustic beam can also have some spread. Uh, that's governed by diffraction as well. It looks like lambda over L. L is the width of the acoustic beam. And so the total spread of the optical beam relative to the acoustic beam comes from any spread of the optical beam and any spread of the acoustic beam. Um, oftentimes, we want to have a long interaction length to maximize our diffraction efficiency. And that means a long interaction length means you need a plain acoustic waves. That would mean the spreading of the acoustic beam would be zero. Okay, so we're going to neglect that in our analysis. This one? So, yeah, so, where would, so, where would this triangle appear to be? Which so, oh, uh, how about I go forward because there's a picture that shows it better here. Um, here's the spreading of the incident beam. It's actually converging, but that means it's going to be spreading out after uh, it passes through a waste. So, there's some spread, delta theta, of the optical beam. Um, if there's a spread in the angle of the acoustic beam, that's going to add some spread to this. And so for a particular ray or a particular k-vector of the incident beam, there's a particular k-vector for the output beam. And if there's a spread in the angle of the acoustic beam, that gives you a spread in the angle of the diffracted beam. Right? So we have that on both rays, and the total spread in the output comes from the sum of the two. Right, so this is the spread of the optical beam. We add to that half the spread of the acoustic beam there, half the spread of the acoustic beam there. And that gets us to the total spread of the output beam. Right, and we're going to neglect the spreading of the acoustic beam now. OK, so what we want is we want the spreading of the beam due to my modulation. Okay, so as I change the frequency, that's going to change the Bragg angle. And that changes the diffraction angle. So this term in parentheses is how much the diffraction angle changes due to my modulation. I want that to be less than the spreading of the optical beam. If it's not, then what that means is um, Essentially, my beam is being steered back and forth by the change in frequency rather than just having its amplitude changed. Okay. A slightly more correct way to think of that, uh, but a way which uses some uh, machinery we haven't introduced yet, we'll get to that, I believe, today, um, is that the modulation puts on sidebands on the light of different frequencies. And those sidebands are going to diffract at different angles. The diffraction of the sidebands has to overlap the carrier in order to have a modulated field come out. OK, so requiring that the spread in the, um, the spread in the diffracted beam due to modulation d theta df delta f 
which I can get from the second expression on this slide. Looks like lambda over 2n cosine theta times delta f. So I missed a v. That needs to be less than the spreading of the optical beam. And the spreading of the optical beam I had here is 2 lambda over pi n times the Gaussian beam waste. So the wavelengths cancel. And I can get an expression for delta f. is given here. And I've written the what I call the modulation bandwidth as half of that value. Um, basically because this is the full spread of the optical beam and I want to consider um, consider changes in the angle from the median value. So it's really only half the spread of the optical beam that I care about. So it's only going to be half of that frequency that I solve for. OK, so that tells me the maximum frequency at which I can drive this modulator and have it produce a amplitude modulated beam coming out. If I drive it at frequencies larger than that, then what I've got is on my diffracted beam, I've got a spreading where there's different optical frequencies at different points. And because they don't overlap, they don't interfere and produce amplitude modulation. Yes. This is the maximum frequency we can drive it at. That's the maximum frequency that we can modulate the RF field at. Okay, so if this is my RF field that produces the acoustic wave, and my modulator is here. goes in, drives a PZT. There's a crystal in here. That sets up an acoustic wave. My light comes in, and I get some diffraction off that acoustic wave. If I now change the amplitude of that driving wave, and I do it very rapidly, I can draw some sort of changing envelope to this driving wave. Okay. Since I don't have a constant amplitude wave, this has multiple frequency components. The Fourier decomposition of this, when we had just a constant amplitude wave, was a delta function of the RF frequency. Now, any um, frequency of amplitude modulation I put on this adds components around that. So you recognize this as the uh, Fourier transform of a cosine wave. And because it's shifted away from 0, it's modulating an RF carrier instead of DC. Um, so there's three different frequencies. You can think of this as three different acoustic frequencies here. And that's going to give rise to, color code these, 
maybe I should. color code it like this. Um, because I've got these three different frequency acoustic waves simultaneously adding up. They produce diffraction at three different angles. Each of those diffracted beams has a different frequency, different optical frequency, because it got Doppler shifted by the acoustic frequency, and they each diffracted off of different frequency acoustic waves. So call this E1, E2, and E3. If I add up those three waves, superposition tells me I can take waves and I can add up the independent waves and get the, the total wave, I could ask what the electric field looks like as a function of time. Or better yet, I could ask what the Fourier transform of that looks like. Well, it's going to have three delta functions. And those delta functions are in the neighborhood of the optical frequency. They're shifted up by an average value of the RF frequency. When you say the optical, you mean the incoming optical The optical wave, yeah, the incoming optical wave. Because it's changed up the front, right? They all get, they all get Doppler shifted by values that are approximately equal to the uh, RF frequency. I do this linearly, F naught. That's the RF frequency. That's a little bit less. That's a little bit greater. Okay, the amount that this is less and the amount that that is greater is the same as this. And that's what I'm calling delta F, a modulation frequency. And I'm asking, how big can that be? How big can that be and have this device function as I want it to? Be, want it to? Um, if I have this Fourier transform, I already know what the temporal response of the electric field looks like, it, because I've already done this problem in reverse. It should look like this. It's an electric field whose amplitude is changing. So if I'm building an amplitude modulator, I can take this um, envelope on the acoustic wave and impose it on the optical wave. much higher frequency, draw it like this, through this, this device. Um, that assumes that these three fields are adding up, that they overlap in space. And if the diffraction angle is too big, or if the difference in the diffraction angle is too large, then these will be spatially separated. And instead of seeing all three adding up to produce this, I will see three independent beams, okay, which is not the amplitude modulation that I would expect. And that happens when these are separated by more than their uh, beam spread. Okay, so if there's some spreading to the beam, I want the minimum this half angle spread to be equal to the difference in the uh, diffraction angles of the frequency components I want to impose in the beam. Right. And what happens is when you start with low frequency modulation where these are close together, these beams are close together, then you can pretty well treat this as a single beam with its amplitude changing. And as this frequency increases and the beams separate out more and more, the net effect is that you get a smaller spatial overlap of the beams, less interference, and more constant DC background from the parts of the beams that don't overlap.
you get reduced contrast. So instead of seeing this at higher modulation frequencies, you see shallower modulation and more DC offset. No. The distance between the sidebands and the, this right. middle one we call the carrier. The yeah, and that's the frequency of this blue line here that I drew, that, that envelope. Um, so if you think about it as, um, I mean, so this is what happens in radio, right? Amplitude, AM radio is you have someone's voice going into a microphone. That's a very low frequency signal, an audio frequency signal that you want to, that you can't uh, directly broadcast for a couple reasons. One is you need very long antennas because it's such a low frequency. Another one is if everyone's broadcasting at the same time, the, using the same frequency. So you use that to modulate the amplitude, AM, amplitude modulation, of an electromagnetic wave. Different stations will use different frequencies. Right? The frequency of that modulation is, determines the size of the antenna and the, the frequency you have to detune at, you know, decode it at. Um, and then the process of decoding reproduces the uh, original waveform. So blue is the voice or black is the... Blue is. Blue is the voice. And black is the uh, 97.1 megahertz, or if it's AM, it'll be whatever, 760 kilohertz or whatever that is. Yep. Um... It's also necessary that the uh, spread in the optical beam. So what this tells us is that if we want fast modulation, we should have a large spread in the optical beam. Right? If we have that, um, that gives us the largest possible modulation uh, range, the largest possible um, bandwidth. But there's a limit to how much spread we can have in the optical beam. You don't want the optical beam spread to exceed the diffraction angle. Um, and so that sets the constraint that uh, that spread be less than the Bragg angle. So we had an expression for the um, I guess I don't do anything further with that expression. But we could very easily plug in um, for omega naught or w naught. We could set delta theta equal to the Bragg angle, solve for w naught, plug it in there, and get another form for that. Um, that would be a little more fundamental than this form. Okay. I thought I had done that, and I haven't. Okay, uh, we have one more, one more uh, slide on acoustic optics, and that is going back to our um, figure of Merrick that we introduced. It looked like n to the six p squared over rho v cubed. You'll often see that listed as M2. That's one figure of merit that accounts for how much diffraction efficiency there is. Um, but it's also often desirable to maximize the bandwidth of the modulator as well. So there's another figure of merit that also accounts for how much uh, bandwidth the modulator can have. That's called M1. It depends on the same parameters, but with slightly different dependences. And it's a term in an expression that gives the product of the um, diffraction efficiency and the bandwidth. Okay, so if you're poking around looking for a figure of merit and you come across M1, M2, there's also an M3, um, which I 
I'm not discussing. But if you see those different things, you want to make sure that you're using the one um, that is intended. And our book only refers to one figure of merit. It calls it M. It's M2. Any questions? What is it maximized by and what does that mean? Okay, so um, let's look at a typical application of an acoustic modulator, um, or just a modulator in general. I made the analogy of this being like a radio transmission. Of course, the difference is radio transmissions use radio frequency waves. This is going to use an optical wave as a carrier. What type of communications use optical waves as the carrier of the signals? So fiber optics, pretty much the backbone of the internet and all modern telecommunications, are based on um, channeling all the signals through fibers. So the basic setup looks like this. You have a laser. Um, Some modulator I'm going to call it an amplitude modulator, although it could as well be a frequency modulator. And then some input signal that drives that. And if we look right here and here, points, call it one and point two, of the uh, frequency spectrum of the light. So let's look at the power as a function of frequency. What is that spectrum going to look like at point one? It's a delta function. And what frequency does it peak at? Yeah, so this is a laser frequency. OK, now at point two, if this is an acousto-optic modulator, at point two, what would the uh, power spectrum look like? Uh, let's assume for the moment that we are going to look at a diffracted beam from an acousto-optic modulator, and that there's no signal. So I guess I can say that we have some sinusoidal signal at frequency, which I'll call the RF frequency. We multiply that by the input voltage. That puts on the uh, slowly varying envelope. And the output of that multiplication we use to feed the AOM. So now let me say that Vn equals 0. So we're just driving it at a constant RF frequency. And I look at the diffracted beam. What's the power spectrum going to look like? So it's going to be frequency shifted. So if this was F laser, this is F laser minus FRF. That's assuming I'm diffracting uh, from a receding beam. If I were taking the other diffraction order, it would be F laser plus FRF. OK, now let me remove the assumption that the input drive is 0. And let's look at what the uh, frequency spectrum of my signal is. At point 3. So let's say this is music, or sound, or voice. This is just the frequency spectrum of that music, sound, or voice. If you have a stereo with a graphic 
what do we call it, a graphic, not a graphic equalizer, but the little bars that go up and down, right, when the bass pumps. That's what this is. Okay, so this is the, vo the, the, um, this is the frequency spectrum of our signal, which is going to be a low frequency audio frequency range. So it doesn't have components that go beyond, say, 20 kilohertz. In practice, if it's voice, it might not go beyond like 3 kilohertz. This is a telephone system. Okay, so that gets put onto the RF field. And I can ask what the voltage spectrum at point 0.4 looks like. And what it's going to be is the convolution of this and the RF frequency. So this audio frequency signal gets shifted over by the RF frequency. Uh, in frequency space, it's adding a bias to it. Um, so we call the RF frequency the carrier and the audio frequency the signal, or the audio spectrum, the signal that's sitting on top of the carrier, or that modulates the carrier. So that's what's driving the acousto-optic modulator. The signal at point 2 is not just going to be a delta function, but it's going to be it's going to be the laser frequency shifted by various amounts. So each component of this frequency spectrum shifts the laser frequency by whatever frequency that component is at. And so we get the audio spectrum sitting on top of an RF frequency, shifting the laser frequency. It is because it's, it's a convolution. Um, think about this. We're, um, in time, we're multiplying. And so when you multiply in time, in the Fourier transform space, you do a, a convolution where you shift. And uh, yeah, the. Full details of that are beyond the scope of today's discussion, at least. Um, OK, so let's say then you've got a fiber optic sitting over here. And you want to take that signal and you want to send it you know, across the country, across the world. And then the other end, you'll decode it. And it'll go into someone's telephone earpiece or someone's radio or into their computer. Um, The great thing about fiber optics, what do we always hear about fiber optics? They're fast. Fast means they can carry a lot of data. Right? A lot of data means they have a large bandwidth. You probably hear those terms fast and high bandwidth used interchangeably. In frequency space, what that means is the transmission window the glass that makes up that fiber is very large. It can accommodate a lot of a large range of frequencies or a large wage range of wavelengths with very little attenuation. Okay, so let's say this represents the frequency window, the frequency bandwidth of the fiber, which is going to be on the order of ter uh, yeah, terahertz. Actually, much hundreds of terahertz. Um, the frequency of my RF signal is going to be on the order of megahertz. Okay. Um, the demo I did last time, I had 40 megahertz signal. And that comes from a number of factors. One is um, higher acoustic frequencies see more loss in the crystal and don't propagate as well. Um,
another reason is, well, no. That's, let me just state for the moment as fact that modulation bandwidth is going to, of the acoustic modulator is going to be in the megahertz regime, maybe up to a few hundred megahertz. Okay, so that means the laser frequency only gets shifted by a few hundred megahertz. And if you've got terahertz of bandwidth, you're not, you'd say we're not filling the, the spectrum of that fiber efficiently, or it's possible for the fiber to carry much more information. It's possible for it to record much faster changes in the, the light than you can produce using a single acoustic optic modulator. Okay, so what you can do, anybody want to hazard a guess as to what you can do to efficiently fill the bandwidth of the fiber? Yeah, you can have a whole array of lasers, each with a slightly different frequency, the same basic setup, where each one then produces um, information in a different frequency channel. Well, no, each one, this would be a single block, okay. and you'd repeat that block many times, and you'd couple all the light together into the fiber. Um, You can also, so if this is encoding telephone conversations, let's say, this represents one telephone conversation, but you can have a second telephone conversation or second audio signal that's encoded using the same AOM with a different RF frequency. And that's going to produce a signal with a different frequency component because it's shifted by a different RF frequency. And you can do that to fill a range of frequencies. That range of frequencies is the bandwidth of the modulator. Okay, you can never have that range of frequencies exceed the frequency of the RF drive, because if you did, then the haven't drawn this. Uh, well, if you did, then the plus RF frequencies over here and the minus RF frequencies would cross and would interfere. Okay, so there's some useful modulation bandwidth for the modulator itself. And then if you want to fill your fiber with even more information, you then need to go to different lasers that are at different frequencies, which is basically producing different channels that, that fill this up. Yeah, so that's called wavelength division multiplexing. That's how so modern so communications is done. Imposes that onto the optical wave. Right. So we channel light in, the modulator encompasses all that information and sends it up to the power table. Yep. And how come the blue, red, and black are each blue? How come they don't interfere with one another? They're different frequencies. So but they do overlap a little bit. Well, you have to choose Okay. Have you ever listened to the TV late at night um, and there's an obnoxious commercial for a lawyer and they flash in bright yellow letters on the bottom, call this number, and it blinks, and as it blinks you hear screeching sounds? You ever notice that? Okay. Pay attention. Well, it ha um, it'll, it, it, won't ha it doesn't happen anymore. Okay. <laughs> Digital television. All right. It doesn't happen anymore. It used to happen. Uh, what happens is the uh, very sharp contrast between the dark and bright colors of the uh, bright lettering, and as the electron gun scanning across, that picture information has very sharp edges. It takes very high frequencies to reproduce those sharp edges. And each 
television station is allotted 6 megahertz of frequency space. So what you have to do is, in order to ensure that these signals don't overlap, you have to restrict the frequency of the signals that you allow. So in order to ensure there's no problems with that, you put a low-pass filter in here. So if you're trying to send voice signals through a phone, you put a low-pass filter in there to make sure nothing over, say, 3 kilohertz gets through, because you don't want someone plugging in a computer and generating signals that the human voice can't that you know, couple through and screw up all the, uh, the rest of the telephone conversations that are trying to be transmitted on the same fiber. Uh, so in the case of the television stations, um, these different frequencies represent the different frequencies that your TV would decode and tune in um, the different channels. And they're allotted 6 megahertz. About 4 megahertz is for the video, and the remainder is for the audio. And when the video content has components that are greater than that 4 megahertz, because there are what's called broadcast illegal uh, contrast in the image, um, it causes the video information to spill out into the channel reserved for audio, and so your speakers start squealing. Um, and so there's this term broadcast legal, and if you've ever like worked in Final Cut Pro or some video editing software, you may have noticed this broadcast legal filter. And what you're supposed to do is a computer can generate white, black, two pixels next to each other, one's white, one's black, but the NTSC, which no longer exists, but that was the analog television uh, standard, had a set of requirements that the contrast could never exceed 80% of full modulation. So you could never, if you started at black, you couldn't go up past 80%. So really, you're supposed to, black is supposed to be 10% gray level, and white is supposed to be 90% gray level. If your computer generates something that's truly 0 and 100, um, it will interfere. If, if it were broadcast over the airways, it would interfere with neighboring channels. Um, it's not an issue if you just play it on your computer monitor. Right? So some of, these, some of these filters really only are relevant if you're a broadcast engineer. But um, that's where they come from, and uh, I can't use that analogy anymore. Okay, that, that stinks. Well, so as you understand, broadcasting over the airwaves, that's not a fiber of the airwaves. No, but it's the same. Uh, yes, and uh, well, I've described this for amplitude modulation because that's what the acousto-optic modulator, and that's the sort of easiest uh, device to make out of this. Uh, you hear frequency modulation for the radio, frequency or phase modulation, which are basically the same thing. If you frequency is just a time-rated change of phase. Um, that's more commonly done. Okay. And there's even more complex modulation schemes that are used, like uh, VSV, where it's a is, is the the scheme used now with the digital televisions some fancy thing that does single sidebands. There's all sorts of stuff. If you look into like how Wi-Fi N works and all this stuff, they do all these fancy encoding and I don't yet understand it all. 